Like I said yesterday, we saved a City Hall story for today because Courtney Estoffi would be here to talk about it. She wrote that story. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney as well as Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. We'll get to that story in a minute. First, we've got a stunning ruling from the Ohio Supreme Court. One that says the public's business is none of the public's business. It's an unprecedented attack on transparency. Laura, what did the court rule in a 4-3 decision that is the latest blow to free and open democracy in Ohio? Apparently, we taxpayers in Ohio have no right to know how much we paid to protect the governor and 20 of his family members when they traveled to the Super Bowl to watch the Bengals in 2022. This is no surprise that the court split along ideological lines. The Republicans voted for secrecy, and they won since that's 4-3, the way the court goes. They're using the security records exception to Ohio public records laws in this lawsuit, which was filed by the Cincinnati Inquirer. They wanted to know how much it cost for the security detail, the Ohio State Highway Patrol, to travel with the DeWines because the DeWines paid their own way. It's not like we paid for the Super Bowl ticket, but we had to get the security detail there. And that includes the travel expenses, airfare, meals, hotels, and a car rental. And we probably will never know because the court says that's secret. And if you gave it out, you could maybe figure out how the governor is protected in the future and that would compromise his safety. Yeah, I, I, this is an astounding ruling because this doesn't give away security information. I mean, they're, they're blocking the totals. They're blocking categories. They're blocking everything. And the taxpayer no longer knows how their money is being spent. There's no way to be accountable. So this gives elected leaders basically slush funds. They could do whatever they want, claim it's part of their security, and the public would never see how they're spending money. I can't tell you how many times in the four decades plus I've been doing this that we've done travel expense stories that mm-hmm. show elected officials abusing their expense accounts. This is ridiculous that the court has ruled this way. It violates every previous precedent. There is no excuse for it. We're not asking to know how many troopers were with him each hour of the day or what their strategy is for blocking people from who might have ill intent toward the governor. You can clearly take that stuff out of Uh these records, but they're blocking everything. So it's basically turning travel expenses in this state for elected leaders into a slush fund. That's a really good point, because remember the stories we did about the South Euclid judge and her conferences in places like Hawaii, because there were thousands and thousands of taxpayer dollars being spent there and how much of a hassle that was to even get the records. The next time somebody's doing that, someone's taking junkets to somewhere pretty exotic, they're going to be able to point to this and say, I don't have to tell you. And that is a really scary aspect of this. I would like to point out that Justice Pat DeWine, Governor DeWine's son, recused himself from this case. We don't know if he was one of the 20 people who traveled to the Super Bowl. I even went through his account on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and he had a bunch of Who Day posts, but nothing from L.A., that time of year. So I'm not sure. I mean, th- this is a little different from the South Euclid case because the governor and his family, they yes, paid absolutely. for those expenses. But there was a big security detail, apparently, that went. And we don't even know what the total cost was. We know nothing. And, you know, the, the Gannett 
newsroom sought these records and 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 pushed it and now we have a precedent that forevermore shields the records look it's by tolerating this we slowly continue our move in ohio to an authoritarian state keeping secrets about how you spend the public's money is what authoritarians do the Supreme Court under Sharon Kennedy is going in that direction. You cannot overstate how important this is. It's another step. We keep taking these little steps toward authoritarian government and everybody accepts them. And by the time we recognize what's happened, we will no longer have democratic government in this state. You deserve to know how your tax dollars are spent. That is not secret by any stretch of the imagination. The Supreme Court is violating the rules by doing this. And, right. and uh, you know, you got to think they're worried about we're going to be looking at their expense reports, which I suspect <laughs> we will now, because what are they trying to hide? That's a that's an interesting point. The Justice Michael Donnelly, he wrote the dissent and for the court's three liberals, and he argued that even though there will sacrifice some amount of security, I don't think you can say it's zero, the transparency of the public greatly outweighs this and that you can make a security argument about anything that the government does. Like if that's going to be your argument, you could say, well, we, we can't tell you anything that the governor does because that would compromise his security because someone could know where he's going to be. I mean, he puts out press releases. I'm going to be here at this time to talk about this. That is a security risk, that, right? That security exception yeah, is used all the time, in my view, improperly by local governments. That's already kind of, in my view, an abused exception. This This takes it to a new level. Yeah, this is this goes in a whole new direction. Look, the other thing is, you know, somebody who wants to challenge Sharon Kennedy as chief justice the next time she's up should be able to use this. They, they should be able to say we have a chief justice who is turning public information into secret information, blocking taxpayers from knowing how their money is spent. But the way the rules are for people running for office, for judicial offices, they're not really allowed to do it. This should be part of that campaign. She should be held accountable for taking public information that has always been public and hiding it from all of us so that future leaders can spend money profligately. This is her. She did this. This is her court. And she should be held accountable. And I'm not sure that a candidate challenging her would be able to do that. I mean, I still think the court should be impartial, but that is a pipe dream in this state. Well, they voted along party lines instead of doing the right thing. There is no, you cannot make the argument that this is correct. This is not correct. This violates the state law. It violates everything that we hold dear in transparency and creates a gigantic loophole for ludicrous spending. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With that kind of ridiculous decision by Sharon Kennedy's court, which spits in the face of the people who pay taxes, what might we expect from the Supreme Court in another case that has agreed to hear about domestic violence, Lisa? I have a feeling, Chris, you and I are going to disagree on this one, but the Ohio Supreme Court says it will review an appeals court decision that overturned a conviction in a 2021 domestic violence case and calling it victimless prosecution. So for the background, Gary Smith of Cleveland was convicted of injuring his partner in Common Pleas Judge Sherry Myday's court, 
The victim failed to show for trial. My day ruled that her video statement taken by police could be used instead. So Smith was convicted. He got an 11-year sentence and he appealed. The 8th District Court of Appeals ruled that relying on statements alone violated his Sixth Amendment right to confront his accuser in court and failed to prove that he coerced her into not showing up to trial. Uh, Appeals admin judge Eileen Gallagher says there's a growing trend of Cuyahoga prosecutors using uh, the victimless prosecution to get convictions. And she said, we find this practice to be abhorrent. Prosecutor Mike O'Malley is urging the court to overturn the appeals decision. Also, 10 state and national domestic violence groups are on his side. They say that victims don't cooperate for various reasons, including the threat of of future abuse. And they say that this ruling could lead to fewer prosecutions. I don't think I'm going to disagree with you at all. I I believe very strongly you have a right to face your accuser. I wrote a column about it two weeks ago mm-hmm. with regard to all those anonymous, supposedly anonymous, we don't even know if there are any, people that were lodging accusations against the mm-hmm. NWACA director, Grace Gallucci. It's not fair if you want to claim that she's doing a bad job, stand up and say it, put your name behind it. I, I, don't, I don't understand how you can deprive somebody of their liberty and put them in prison without having them have the ability to discredit their accusers. Yes. I mean, miscarriages of justice will occur if I don't get to, and, and it's a basic right. You have your basic right. So I, I, I'm worried the court's going to go the other way. Oh, say, okay. You don't have a right to face your accuser for all these reasons and too bad. And, the, you know, I think this, the appellate court did the right thing. I get Mike O'Malley's frustration. Um, there are a lot of victims that are afraid to to stand up and testify, but you do have a basic right. If your liberty is going to be taken, if you're going to be sent to prison, you have the right to face your accuser. Oh, good. Then we are we are in agreement. I wasn't <laughs> sure where you were going with that, but, you know, and I agree. I mean, you know, the defendant doesn't get a chance to cross-examine. And in this situation, the when the police were called, she had gone to a relative's house, you know, and they saw the injuries. They called 911. So the statement was taken, you know, not at the scene of the alleged crime or the crime because he was convicted. But um, yeah, I just feel like it's a real slippery slope to allow people to not face their, you know, accuser in court. Yeah. It's, it's exactly like the story we just talked about. It's another step away from the principles we hold dear. That's a basic right. You get to face your accuser. And even if it's frustrating, even if it's challenging, that's your job. You ran to be prosecutor. These are the conditions you've got to proceed with. I just don't understand how you can convict somebody without them getting to face their accuser in court. Well, I'd like to understand how Mike O'Malley thinks that this would lead to fewer prosecutions. I I don't really understand that. I I think the devil's advocate point of view is worth, you know, exploring a little bit more on this. I mean, we know domestic violence. This is a thing, right? Women get scared because they, they fear for themselves in the middle of these cases. How do you get around that? I mean, is the solution really to just not prosecute these cases and let people who are doing this to their partners, just not address that problem? Look, it's a big challenge. It's, you have a problem. So you have to convince these witnesses and protect these witnesses and do whatever you can to make sure that they're safe. But, but we can't deny due process 
because the ends justify the means. I mean, you just, you can't do it. It's remember, you know, would that a hundred guilty people go free than one innocent person go to prison. We have to respect the rights of the accused. You're innocent until proven guilty. And the way you prove they're guilty is by having the witnesses testify. Right. I, I hear what you're saying, Courtney. It's hard. Mm-hmm. People are afraid, but this isn't the solution to, to abandon our basic principles of justice in America. These are, this is the fabric of our government right. we're talking about here. The the transparency of public spending, the right to face your accusers. We get rid of these rights. Who are we as a right, nation? Right. And I honestly think that's the dark side of the Me Too movement. A lot of people had their careers ruined. No charges were filed. The, the, the accusers were never identified. They made allegations that were never substantiated, but they ended up ruining somebody's life anyway because there was no due process. I worry what this court will do because they clearly don't care about right and wrong. And I could see them giving Michael Malley what he wants here, which is the beginning. What's the next kind of case we do this Mm -hmm. with? You know, a bank teller is afraid that the gunman might come back so the bank teller doesn't testify in the armed robbery. I mean, I I can put fear into any victim and exempt them from testifying. How does that not lead to miscarriages of justice? You're listening to Today in Ohio. I didn't think Cleveland City Council could make things worse when it comes to public comments at its meetings, but the solution the council has come up with after weeks of thought defies good sense. Courtney, what are the new rules? Yeah, so this development on city council, I mean, you've got to understand that this is framed within the context of they're facing a First Amendment lawsuit that says their old rules were unconstitutional and amounted in some ways to illegal viewpoint discrimination. So that's been at play. And then you've also had these crowds of public commenters coming to city council meetings since October, you know, demanding that council pass a ceasefire, a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And that's clearly been getting under the council members' skin, their their meetings, in their view, being disrupted by Clevelanders, you know, who are upset with them. So within that context, council passed this new slate of rules and, you know, they're kind of different from the old rules, but they, they still present some some squishy conditions here that that the man who's suing council, he's not sold on these rule changes. So, you know, among other things, council's rules switched from, you know, before they barred indecent or discriminatory language. Now, council is barring public commenters from being frivolous or repetitive or using language that is obscene or likely produce imminent unlawful action. So kind of different, but kind of in the same category on that change. Let let, let me interrupt you one second. If you're going to ban the public from being repetitive, does that also apply to the council members? (laughs) Because I covered council meetings. They were very repetitive. Much shorter, wouldn't it, Chris? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, it, the new rules also require speakers to address all comments to the presiding officer, who's council president Blaine Griffin during most meetings. And this is kind of different. OK, stop, stop, stop there. Stop on that one, too. What's that about? I mean, is he going to wear the Fred Flintstone hat with the, you know, is the grand poobah? Why can't you address your question to whomever you want? I, I don't understand the purpose of that. That's like imperious. I'm the king. You will address me, my royal subjects. Yeah, well, so I think this is like a new iteration of the previous rule that was struck that that was basically saying that 
speakers had to address council as a body and it prohibited them from addressing <laughs> individuals. And and the way Council President Griffin interpreted that at previous meetings was that you you sometimes you can't mention anybody's name. You can't mention people by name. But then he also allowed people to be mentioned by name when it was positive comments about that council person, but not when speakers came up and made negative comments about that council person. And that's kind of an issue in the lawsuit because the the person who's suing city council says that's unlawful viewpoint discrimination. You can't allow positive comments, but not negative ones. So I think the kicker here with these new rules is okay, whatever's on paper, fine, but is Griffin and council going to enforce them in such a way that it's definitely constitutional that remains let, to see. Let, let's let's wheel back right let, let's talk about why you originally invited the public to meetings the, 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 this is across the land every little village and city council they're considering changes to the city code the ordinances regulations whatever and as they discuss this in three meetings they want to hear from the public you know, to, to make sure that the public's input is is there. That That is the purpose of the public comment section at meetings. It was never open mic night where you rattle off whatever. It was supposed to be in collaboration for legislation. So if they did that, if they said, you're here to talk about what we have before us, then somebody could get up and say, you know, you're about to pass an ordinance that says I can't put signs in my yard bigger than nine by nine feet. And I disagree because of X and Y. And they should be able to say, you know, and Councilman X, I heard what you've said about this and how it litters the neighborhood. But I think differently. It's supposed to be that conversation. That's what it's about. And in the past, if council wanted to get the general sentiments of the people of Cleveland, they went out and had community meetings and met with them and said, okay, I'm getting, I'm going to be at this church hall. Come on down. I want to hear from you what your problems are. They would field those kinds of things and then bring them back to the rest of the body. Something's broken here. I mean, these rules are wacko. I can't talk to my councilman. I have to talk to the grand wizard sitting up behind the curtain. And I, the, the, it's just, there, there's no specificity to what's going on. I can't imagine that this lawsuit doesn't continue and they don't get humiliated because this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, where the lawsuit goes, I think, is watching that unfold is going to be key here. These rules that council passed were just night and day different from ones proposed by Chris Martin, who's suing them. And and so clearly they're not anywhere close to a settlement or meeting in the middle if they've just got two wildly different ideas of what the outcome ought to be here. So I'm with you. I imagine this proceeds in, in court and this doesn't resolve anything. In the meantime, I think it's also worth noting here that some of these rule changes dictate what audience members can do at city council meetings. And in the midst of this big showing of support and all these attendees at the weekly council meetings who want a ceasefire resolution, you know, they're clapping, they're making noise in response to public comments, the people who are sitting in in the seats. And, and these new rules like seem to clamp down on them. Like you can't clay up, you can't stomp your feet, <laughs> yeah. you can't make loud noises. What's going to happen next week when this crowd potentially does that? Is the council president really going to move in to get them kicked out by police or arrested by police? No way. Yeah, I, I don't 
they're overthinking this so badly. And they, I just can't believe this is what they came up with after all that time. I, you would think somebody in the room would have the common sense to point out the error of their ways. But, but I will, I do want to jump in. I was sitting at yours truly yesterday eating lunch and they had Spectrum One News on and they had video from the from that city council meeting. Those people are off the hook. I'm sorry. They were screaming and yelling and talking over right. people. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. I, I look, there's an easy solution that you we welcome comments on the business before us and then continue their solicitation of constituent matters in a series of meetings that aren't at the meeting that you're there to conduct business in. I it's a mind boggling turn of events. You're right, Lisa. It shouldn't be out of control. It shouldn't be open mic night. That's not what the business of a city council meeting is. And so many other city councils understand this. This is just Cleveland being Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Man, we're two-thirds of the way through the time and only three stories into the discussion. (laughs) What is the attorney for Northeast Ohio's big planning agency thinking? The governing board, in a bid for quality governance, decides to hire a law firm to review the agency, and the agency attorney tries to usurp the board's role? What did some key leaders have to say about this power grab, Laura? Well, I don't think the new president of NOACA really thought this through and all the implications. That's basically what he said over this hubbub where he appointed a lawyer to look into Grace Gallucci and thought he had the authority to do that and just took the recommendation of the Noaka lawyer, didn't think through how that might look. And the Cuyahoga County Executive, Chris Ronane, Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb, they blasted that decision. And they're on the executive committee and they're like, excuse me, you can't handpick a lawyer to investigate complaints against the executive director without talking to us. This has been ongoing. We, we already talked a little bit about the anonymous letter that we haven't written about the details of the letter, but has allegations against the executive director of NOACA, Grace Gallucci. And so that's what they're looking into here. But they've got to figure out who should do the investigation because not a good idea to just say the Noaka lawyer suggested this Rob Glickman and I'm going to hire him because I thought I had the authority to do that. Well, it's the lawyer who's inappropriate here. I, I give the executive director board chair a pass, but when the executive committee comes out and says, okay, we have these allegations, they're anonymous. We don't even know where they're coming from, mm-hmm. but before we renew the contract, let's, let's take a look. That, that's that's the board's decision. That's the board's call for the attorney, for the for the agency to then go out and usurp that power is beyond reason. I mean, I they, they should be looking very closely at what what the motivation was there. I mean, if you do this wrong, it, it becomes a witch hunt. Who are mm-hmm. these anonymous people that dare criticize the agency Instead of an honest look, which is what the board wants, is there any there there? Grace Gallucci says this is all nonsense. We have seen zero evidence to back up any of those allegations. This is it, it purports to be purports to be 22 people that have worked or work there. We don't know if it's one person. We don't know if they ever worked there. You know nothing. And again, they provided not a single piece of evidence to back up what they're saying. So you want an honest look. But it has to be in good faith. And for what this attorney did, it's not good faith. Well, exactly. And if they find nothing and 
then how do you trust that investigation either and say, hey, this person, you know, is related to the person, the NOACA and not related, but knows the NOACA attorney. They probably got it in with Grace Gallucci. And so it, it wasn't a real investigation in the first place. Like You have to do everything very transparently in order to gain the trust of the people who made the allegations, the person being investigated, and the taxpayers. Because let's not forget, this: the whole reason this body exists is to spend our federal tax dollars, $50 million a year, on transportation projects in Cuyahoga, Lorraine, Lake, Geauga, and Medina counties. They're the ones who get to decide where that next interchange goes or what road we're going to be fixing. So we all have a stake in this agency. Well, there's one other option. They could get it to the Supreme Court and they could make the whole thing (laughs) secret and we'd never know how it ends. (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who knew you can walk into a corner store and buy a joint containing THC and you've been able to do it for a while? Lisa, what did Laura Hancock learn as she forayed into the world of legal THC? Yeah, she did a little waltz around Columbus trying to buy Delta 8 THC, which is a hemp product, so it has a very small amount of THC. She said she was pretty unsuccessful until her last stop. She hit a couple of BP stations, but then on her way home, she decided to try her neighborhood corner store. So she went in. She paid about 28 bucks for a Delta 8 THC candy called Nerdy Bears and a joint that appears to be THCA. And the thing about the Nerdy Bears, it had 420, 420 milligrams of THC. The package is very similar to the regular Nerds candy, very colorful with the little characters. And then the owner asked her if she wanted a pre-roll. And she said, Okay. She said, well, I need something to help with sleep. What do you got? So he produced a big jar full of joints and, <laughs> and he said, well, these are sativa. Sativa are strains that are more uplifting and energetic. And he says, but I have indica too, which is the more sedate mellow strain. So she asked Columbus attorney, Greg May, who represents hemp and marijuana producers. And he said that joint is likely THCA, which is tetrahydrocannabinolic acid. It's a precursor to D9-THC. It becomes D9-THC when it's heated to a certain point, so if you smoke it. So this is what they call THC flower in the unregulated marketplace. And uh, May says that, you know, hemp and marijuana sellers are actually butting heads. And they said they really have to fix the hemp bill. Hemp par- Butting heads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He said, honestly, hemp products should be sold in marijuana dispensaries. He said a lot of market share is being given away to these unregulated hemp sellers. Um, But Lindhurst Fantasy Chocolates owner, Joel Fink, he makes THC products. He said forcing his low THC products into dispensaries would limit where he can sell them. And he said that could lead to lower revenue and possible layoffs. I, this makes a charade out of the entire campaign last year to legalize marijuana because all along you could go into a corner store and pretty much buy it. I, I don't know how Ohio allowed it to get to this point. This all happened after the legalization of hemp, which I think was in a budget bill or it wasn't even the, it, it was not one of those standalone it's a bills. Farm bill. Yeah. It's a farm bill. That, that they put through. And so this has been going on for what, five years, mm-hmm. man? I, I just, how does this happen? Without the state recognizing it, I mean, as a kid, this would have been hilarious. You would have thought, what is going on with my state? They don't even know how to regulate this stuff. 
Um, I get why they're they're worried about it now. You know, we just went through this whole legalization process. They're considering bills to have very serious guardrails around legal marijuana. It's going to be legal. You could be able to buy it to your heart's content, but not kids. And and yet we have this enormous loophole for five years where kids know. I wonder if kids in high school all knew this and they've all been buying it and just having a party (laughs) and none of the adults knew what was going on. Well, this is kind of terrible. This is kind of like the bath salts thing that, you know, every time something was ruled illegal, they changed a chemical component that wasn't regulated. And this is the same thing that's happening according to experts. So they say new THC products are going to continue to be developed and the law will always be playing catch up. Yeah, it's just it's they're gonna they're gonna have to pass something. I, I this is one of the most amusing stories we've seen, and Laura did a wonderful job kind of putting the first person perspective on it. Laura Hancock's done a great job all along covering the marijuana debate. You're listening to today in Ohio. Akron Canton Airport just arranged for its longest ever regular flight. Laura, where to? L.A. So if you want to fly C.A.K. to L.A.X., you can Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays from May through September. Breeze is a really small Utah-based carrier. It started flying in the summer of 2021, and it flies to 45 U.S. cities, including CAK, where it has nine nonstop destinations. You can start flying to LAX for $119 one way if you buy it by January 29th, which I've been looking at flights to the West for spring break. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, they, they, I thought it was interesting that it's the longest regular flight ever out of yeah. Akron Canton because I would have thought, you know, they would have had longer ones at some point. Well, they've been expanding, right? I mean, before, back when Cleveland Hopkins was a hub and Akron was like, we're just going to have all the budget airlines, they want, they were expanding rapidly and they were building those longer runways. And so this is the payoff. And they actually did have an increase in passengers of 29% from 2022 to 2023 because we were worried for a little bit like with all the budget carriers that went to Cleveland Hopkins is Akron going to survive but it keeps getting these new carriers like Breeze and it added a new flight so good for them I flew Breeze to uh, New Orleans last year and basically my flight was delayed a couple hours and if it didn't go I wasn't going to be able to go because they only flew Fridays and Mondays but as long as you can do that and, and it works out for you this is a great deal and it was a one it I had a Great experience. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, you're going to be gone the next two days, and you prepared for one more story, so let's do that one, too. We had a lot of movie theaters close in recent years. I wonder when the last time this region had so few screens, but now comes news of an increase. What's the news? Yeah, this is really surprising. The old Regal Cinemas in the Great Northern Mall in North Olmsted is going to be taken over by Phoenix Theaters. It'll be their eighth such theater in, in a four-state region. They're going to spend $5 million to renovate this 44,000-square-foot building and open it this summer. They hope to employ 50 people, and it's going to have Dolby Atmos sound, heated recliners with liftable armrests, and North Olmsted officials are planning to approve a grant of an unknown amount to Phoenix next month to help with this. So Regal closed in early 2023. It's in a section of the mall that's kind of struggled since Sears closed in 2020, but it's still a bustling mall, which is unusual in these days. They have four major anchors there. They have a lot of small stores and restaurants, so they expect to do well. I've been surprised on the east side how many movie houses have closed in the last five, six years, Severance and Richmond and Mayfield. So it's good to see somebody coming back somewhere. 
you're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. Come back Thursday. We'll be talking about the news.